God originally intended for man to have dominion over the planet. But of course, Satan came along and he tempted that first couple and they lost that opportunity. They lost the farm, so to speak. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we move into chapter 10 today in a message entitled, God's Mighty Angel and Little Book. As we open the chapter, we are introduced to a second strong unnamed angel who we will see is sent to reclaim the fallen earth for Christ. Let's rejoin Pastor Brogy as he begins reading from verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. Now, do you remember the first strong angel we met in chapter 5? Remember, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And so now John in this verse sees another strong angel. And like the previous strong angel, his name is not given, but he is described with the same strong voice. This angel, like the previous one, has a strong voice. By the way, there are just four named angels in the Bible, as this slide shows. Two that are holy, Michael and Gabriel. Two that are fallen. Lucifer was actually Satan before he fell. Some translations transliterate the word. Some interpret it as son of the morning. Lucifer, or in his fallen state, Satan. And of course, he has many titles. And then there's the angel that we studied in chapter 9, verse 11, Apollon in Hebrew and Abaddon in Greek. Now, angels come in different classes. We've already examined the cherubim and the seraphim. And all angels, holy and fallen, are organized and ranked. Uh, angels are more powerful, Second Peter 2.11 says, than humans. And so when you go to the garden tomb and you see the size of the stone that would have sat there in the front of Jesus' tomb, it would have been over 2,000 pounds, and yet a single angel moves it. They are more powerful, but they're not omnipotent. They're intelligent, but they're not omniscient. They are very fast, but they are not omnipresent. But occasionally, God describes an angel in a certain way. And here in the NAS, it says a strong angel. The ESV says, like the New King James, a mighty angel, or some translations, a powerful angel. We will see, by the way, another strong angel when we come to Revelation chapter 18. And that strong angel will take a mighty, mighty millstone and cast it to the earth. Again, I saw another strong angel. Now, sometimes the Greek New Testament can be helpful, and this is certainly one of those places. As you know, in English, there's one word for another. There are two words for another in Greek. There's the word alos, that means another of the same kind. And then there's the Greek word heteros, which means another of a different kind. That word heteros comes right into English, and so we have words like heterosexual or heterodoxy, one word relating to different sexes, or heterodoxy is someone who teaches a different doctrine, something that is less than orthodox. Jesus uses the word alos when he describes the Holy Spirit. Remember, I will ask the Father, and he will send you alos, an alos, another helper, just like myself. 
The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He's not a fleecy cloud. He's not a bird. He's not a force. Don't ever call Him it. He is as much God as the Father, equal with the Son, and equal with the Father. Now, linguistically, he says, I will send an alos, another strong angel. No one debates that the angel, only one mentioned up till this time in chapter 5, is a real, literal angel. And so when he says another strong angel, he's talking about another created being that God made as an angel. So this is the second time this word strong to associate the great power and authority and might he has is associated with one of God's angels. Look at again, verse 1. I saw another angel, another strong angel coming down out of heaven. Notice, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, the reason I think some are quick to get on the bandwagon and think this strong angel is the Lord Jesus is because the description of Jesus and revelation of his face and his feet uh, are in some ways similar. But understand, Christ, again, is never designated as an angel. Hold your finger here, and if you're in the Revelation, scan back a little bit to the right, and you will come to the book of Hebrews. If you're new to the Bible, just go back a little bit, excuse me, to the left, <laughs> and, and you'll come to where you can't go unless you want to go to the maps. Uh, you, you'll come to the book of Hebrews, and then, and then find Hebrews chapter 1, and put your marker in there, because we'll come back to the book of Hebrews after we look at this passage. This, by the way, is a great great passage of Scripture. I've had Mormons and Jehovah's Witness before at my door, and I've brought them to Hebrews chapter 1, and they get all confused. You see, while the Jehovah's Witness have a translation of the Bible that was written by a group of men, none of whom knew the original languages, and they purposely erred in their translation of a number of verses... They messed up on Hebrews 1 and that they kept it just the way God originally had it. And of course, Jesus is distinguished from angels in this passage. Look at Hebrews 1 verse 3. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels. And he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now remember, the writer of the Hebrews is paralleling the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. And there were some Jewish Christians who went back to Old Covenant worship in order to escape persecution. And all the way through the book, he shows the superiority of the New Covenant. And he reminds them the Old Covenant was mediated through angels. But the new covenant, the new deal, the new testament, the new promise is mediated through God the Son, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He's never said that to an angel. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all of the angels of God worship him. Look, you shall worship 
the Lord thy God and Him only, to worship anyone other than God is absolute blasphemy and idolatry. And yet the Father invites the angels. Look, men are never to worship angels, but the angels are to worship the Son. And He again brings the firstborn into the world and says, let all the angels of God worship Him. Verse 7, And of the angels, He said, who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God. Notice, He calls Him God. There's this dialogue in the Trinity. Your throne, O God is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So do not ever think that Jesus is an angel. That may be good Mormonism, but it is not biblical theology. Furthermore, John will show us again his distinctions as we walk through. Look at verse 1 again of Revelation 10. Hold your finger in Hebrews. Don't lose it. We're coming back to it. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, just because he's coming down out of heaven with a cloud doesn't mean that this is Jesus. Now, it is true. In Daniel 7, verse 14, God the Son is seen returning from heaven on a cloud. In fact, Jesus quotes that verse when he speaks of his second coming there on the Mount of Olives. Let me read it to you, Matthew 24, 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power in great glory. Jesus taught that when He descends to earth, in Zechariah, the 14th chapter, says His feet will be planted on the Mount of Olives, the very mountain that He ascended from. Jesus is literally coming to rule and reign upon the earth, that He will come with clouds in great glory. So here's an angel coming to the earth on clouds. Why do we know this cannot be Jesus? Because Jesus underscores in the three places the Olivet Discourse is given that when He comes back on the clouds, that will be the next time, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. So don't think for one millisecond that this could be Jesus. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and notice in the rainbow was upon his head. So he comes, he's clothed with a cloud. And by the way, nine times in the New Testament, clouds are associated with judgment. And yes, this angel has a rainbow upon his head, and uh, he's shining like the sun, and his feet appear, notice, as pillars of fire. But again, this doesn't mean he's God the sun. The word rainbow is the word iris in Greek. Uh, it's used outside of the Bible to describe brilliant colors, like the brilliant colors in f first century Koinoit Greek of a, of a peacock with all of its feathers. It's used to describe the colored portion of the center of your eye, and so it comes directly into uh, English. So it's used to describe brilliant colors, and very often rainbows are associated with mercy. So we're seeing this angel coming from a throne that has a rainbow around it, 
And he comes in essence in uniform. He has a rainbow around his head. You know, and I think among other things, God is underscoring, this is not like the angels we studied in the previous chapter. This is a holy angel of God. And he comes with God's uniform on. And in Scripture, rainbows are often associated also with God's mercy. Most of you at least know of the rainbow. In Noah's day, an expression of the mercy of God. And this section of Scripture is going to begin to unfold for us the mercy of God that is going to happen during this time as His wrath falls on the earth. God's heart is not to destroy man. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His heart is to save people. And so next time we will come to the two witnesses whom God is going to use to preach the gospel, why that men might find Christ. Yes, he has a face like the sun, just like Jesus does in Revelation 1.16. In uh, Revelation 18.1, you see again the same picture, but so don't angels. They are bright. They come in brilliant appearance. Remember the angels at the resurrection tomb where they shone with this great brightness? And this angel has feet like pillars of fire. Now, Jesus' eyes are described that way, but not his feet. His feet are described in the first chapter, like in Daniel, as bronze. Now, there are similarities, let me just say, in the Gospels and the book of Hebrews that we were just in, in the sense that Christ has angels under his authority. And if for no other reason but to show that this angel is different from the other angels we just studied in chapter 9, God is underscoring his description. Now, by now, if you've been with us in our study, we've seen the function of angels doing many things. They're involved in serving. They're involved in worshiping. They're involved in watching. They're involved in announcing. They're involved in delivering judgments. And they are involved in pronouncing doom. In fact, one angel, when we come later to the Revelation, he will take Satan and literally cast him in the abyss where he is locked up for a thousand years. And as you read of the angels in the Revelation, it becomes apparent. Remember, we're reading the future. This has not happened yet. This is not history. This is future. None of these things have happened yet. And as you read through the Revelation, it becomes apparent that these angels are anticipating this day when God's holiness is vindicated, when his righteous judgment comes upon the earth. And so here's this good, holy, strong, mighty angel, verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book. Uh, it's the word for scroll. It's not the word for book like we have a book today. Codexes comes a few centuries later where they're bound like the book that you have in your hand. This is a scroll. And so some of your translations say a little scroll. We talked about the seven-sealed scroll or the seven-sealed book. So he has a little book which was open, and he placed, notice, his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. Now, this is a unusual word. It appears only once in all the Bible, and it's used to describe a very little small book. Now, this is not the scroll that we studied in chapter 5. This is a little book. Now, we're going to see here that he will place his right foot on the sea and his left hand on the land. And we're going to see as we study this passage in what follows, beginning in the 11th chapter, that he is given the authority, the written authority, to pronounce Christ's right to take dominion over the world, which will be formally announced in chapter 11 and verse 15. 
Now, we've already studied back in the sixth chapter when Jesus begins to break open the seals that a seven-sealed scroll in the first century, and really in Jewish people's minds today as you speak with the Orthodox, is descriptive of a title deed. And Jesus, of course, is given the title deed from the right hand of the Father. Remember, John was in heaven. He is weeping. Who is worthy? to take the title deed. And the Father hands it to God the Son. And of course, that title deed represents Christ's right to reclaim what Adam lost. God originally intended for man to have dominion over the planet. But of course, Satan came along and he tempted that first couple and they lost that opportunity. They lost the farm, so to speak. Now, occasionally someone will call me in the Bible line. They'll say, well, Pastor Carl, Didn't God know this would happen? Yes, if God didn't know that, God wouldn't be God. God knows everything. Well, couldn't have God just made it so that Adam wouldn't sin, that he would just obey God and we wouldn't be in this mess today? Sure, God could have done that, but then man would not be a free moral agent. Some of you have taken the course in the Institute on Anthropology, and one of the assignments is to write a paper on what it means to be made in the image of God. And there's about seven things that are underscored in Scripture, and one of those seven is that man is created with a free will. Suppose you had a child that was somewhat rebellious, and suppose somehow you could uh, hypnotize that child where your child says, I love you, Father, I will obey you. That's not what you'd want, is it? No, of course not. See, God created you that you might know Him, that you might have fellowship with Him. And so God gave man the choice to choose good or evil. And when Satan tempted the couple and they chose evil, Adam lost dominion. He became the God of this world. He's called the prince of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And so when in the temptation recorded in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Satan asked Jesus in exchange to worship him, he would give him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't say they're not yours to give. They were his to give because Adam lost those. And as we'll see, there's moving towards a person and an event when Satan will take full dominion through his antichrist. But Christ redeemed the creation and man. If you were with us several years ago in our study of the book of Romans, we saw in Romans 8, like in Genesis, not only did Adam fall, but all of the creation fell. And so Paul personifies the creation as mourning and groaning, looking for its redemption, just as we mourn and groan. And we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, and give me that new resurrection body and complete my salvation. So here's this little book, and this strong angel opens it up because it's given to show that Jesus has authority to take the earth. Jesus made it possible when he died on that cross to not only take people back, but to take the earth and really, as we'll see, all the universe. Notice, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, 71% of the planet, I'm told, is water. I I didn't calculate that myself, but I've looked it up on a number of occasions. 71% of the planet is water, all right? So there's a lot of water, so he's got one foot in the sand and one foot in the water. What is he doing? He's claiming every drop of water 
And every grain of sand, he's claiming the earth for the Lord Jesus. And we see this picture in a number of places in the Word of God. Most of us know with Joshua, God said to Joshua, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I will give it to you just as I spoke to Moses. And so Israel's only duty was to claim the land for the Lord. But in this case, this strong angel claims not just a piece of property, but the land and the sea. Again, remember what we read in Psalm 8. It says, you made him, speaking of man, speaking of Adam, you made him to rule over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. Again, Adam sinned, we in and with Adam, and so we lost our kingdom and our crown. Now, do you still have your finger in Hebrews? All right, go to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2, because I want you to see that the same psalm is quoted in Hebrews 2, and then he is going to apply the truth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's speaking of the superiority of this new covenant, this new deal over the old. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 in verse 6, where he is quoting Psalm 8. But one has testified somewhere saying, now wait a minute, does the writer of the Hebrews have a memory lapse? Oh, somewhere, can't remember where. No, not at all. This man obviously knows his scripture. He perfectly quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. He's not forgotten anything at all. This is just a, a writing style to drive home a point. You come into my office and you say, you're down in the dumps. You say, I just don't feel like God loves me. And I say, isn't it testified somewhere that God so loved you, the world, that he gave his son? That's what the writer is here. That's the force of the statement. He's, again, proving the superiority of the new covenant over the old. And so to establish his argument, he wants to first establish the original destiny that was revealed by God. Stay with me. Verse 6, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now do we not yet see all things subjected to him? All you have to do is look around, and it's obvious that man is not exercising dominion over the creation. Every time I go fishing, I'm reminded of this. I try to outsmart the fish and try to get them to jump on my hook, but they don't ever listen to me. I have to go to one of those stock ponds if I'm going to catch anything. In fact, not only the fish, but the birds and the animals. We used to have a dog named Jenny. And that dog, Jenny, never, ever, ever seemingly listened to me. Uh, just a few Wednesday nights ago, I was mentioning the two madmen of Gadara and how Christ cast 2,000 plus demons into the pigs. And of course, you teach that passage sometimes and people get all bent up like, why did Jesus destroy 2,000 good hogs? You know, that's a lot of bacon or whatever. And, and, uh, but someone came up and said, Pastor Carl, uh, is it possible for an animal to be demon possessed? I said, yeah, I had a dog once named Jenny. She was demon-possessed, and uh, thank God she went home to be with the Lord. <laughs> I wonder if there's gas chambers in heaven. I'm not sure, but I shouldn't say that. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. Again, when Adam sinned, 
He immediately lost his kingdom and his crown. And because we fell with Adam, the earth is not subject to man and even the ground. We now work through the sweat of our brow, through the thistles and thorns. And every time we see these extremes in the weather, it's all a reminder that the creation has fallen. Now look at the first half of verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We do see him, and so now the writer takes the principle and he applies it not to Adam, but to the Lord Jesus to give us the answer to our dilemma. Jesus became a man. Why? That he might suffer and die. That he might recapture the dominion that was lost. We just read in Psalm 8. You have put all things under his feet. This was God's original intention. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the pass of the sea. When Jesus was on this earth, He exercised dominion over the creation. In Mark's account, when He describes the 40 days in which He was tempted in the wilderness, He was there with wild beasts. And not a one harmed Him. On His triumphal entry, we are told that he came on a colt that had never been ridden before there on Palm Sunday. You try to get on a colt that had never been ridden before, and you see just what happens. Jesus exercised dominion over the fish. He commanded them into the nets. And on one occasion, he said, Peter, throw your hook in the water. And the very first fish that he'd already commanded to swallow a fish that you will land on your hook, you can go pay your tax in mine. And he exercises dominion over the birds of the sky. My son Jordan years and I years ago were in the Ukraine and we stayed in one particular house and about five feet outside the window was this rooster. And I want to tell you that rooster started around 3.30, 4 a.m. and it seemed like he never quit. Now I suppose I could have taken a shotgun and killed him, but listen, Jesus had dominion even over the birds. He knew the precise time that rooster would crow in order to send Peter a signal. But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus who created the angels for a short period of time as he took on our humanity was made lower than the angels. He took on a restriction that angels don't have. Angels can't die. But when Jesus took on our humanity and he carried himself there to Golgotha and gave his life in our place, he shed his blood. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. Verse 9, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. He did it that he might redeem the world. Now, John assumes you have that theology. Now, if you lived 50, 75 years ago when people didn't watch TV and spend their whole lives on Facebook, they might have had it, but not in our day. So that's why I took the time to give us that theology. Look now at verse 2. And he had, Revelation 10, 2, and he had in his hand a little book which was open, and he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, in Bible times, when a conqueror overthrew a nation, if he was claiming a piece of property on the shoreline, he would do this exactly, and he would hold up his right hand, and he would claim it in the honor of 
his conquering that place. Christopher Columbus did that when he planted the flag of Spain on that island. And even the Americans did it when we put our flag there on the moon. This method has been used for time and eternity, it seems, to claim something. But here's this strong angel who claims the whole universe in essence for Jesus. Although this world is currently ruled by Satan, a day is coming when God will say no more and he will reclaim and rule the earth as he did before the fall of mankind. To listen again to today's study entitled God's Mighty Angel and Little Book, use the Search the Scriptures app or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV25. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing Christ to those who don't know Him and growing believers in their walk with Him. Join us in our mission through a one-time or regular financial gift. Details are available online at searchthescriptures.org or through the Search the Scriptures app. Simply click the Give button or you can call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at God's mighty angel and little book. Join us then as we search the scriptures.